Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 3. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray for the Lord to use his word to change our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it is theanoustos, that it is breathed out by you. And that we stand here today as a church affirming that your word is infallible, it is authoritative, it is inerrant, and sufficient to accomplish all that you have willed for it to accomplish. And Father, I pray that your word today would pierce our hearts and it would shape us more and more in the image of Christ. And that, Lord, you would use your word to knit us together as a church family, a family that has gathered together for 84 years, a family, we pray, would continue to gather for 84 more and beyond. I pray, Lord God, that you would use your word today and this foolish instrument in your hand, Lord, to proclaim the truth of your glorious grace. We give you the praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Johnny Erickson Tata once wrote, believers are never told to become one. We are already one and are expected to act like it. So here we are today gathered to celebrate the 84th church anniversary of First Baptist Church, a church that began with 13 members out here in the middle of the Mojave Desert. 13 members who committed themselves to live and worship together in a covenant community. Thirteen members who understood the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirteen members who, in faithfulness, affixed their name to a document that was returned to us recently by Brother Mark Chase. Those thirteen members have long since gone. Their names are on a placard out front. Most people walk by and never read. 13 members that most of us have never met. Many of us have never even heard of. 13 charter members who have left a legacy of community, a legacy of faithfulness that brings us together still today. And this is why we celebrate our church anniversary. This is why we take the time to read the names of the pastors who have served here. It's important we remember where the church has been. 
And it's important for us to remember the lessons of the past. For instance, the children's ministry building that we're now working on renovating was constructed using reclaimed lumber from the Manznar internment camp from World War II. A camp that housed many Japanese families during World War II against their will. This church took something that was used for the imprisoning of Japanese-American citizens and used it to transform it into a building where, child, where children are being set free by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church has a legacy of love and of faithfulness. But there has also been dark times in our church's history as well. Like in the 1950s, some of the members of this church had grievances and disagreements with some other members of this church, and they split the church. The result of that was the Boron Bible Church crossed the tracks. I actually met one of the children of the pastor at the time, and he recalled how that happened. He walked me through the heartbreaking details of of how that worked itself out. And he told me that his mother was led to believe that she was the reason for the church split. And that haunted her the rest of her life. He said even near the end of her life, the pain of that event so many years before was still very acute in her heart. Good and bad in him. It's important that we remember the lessons of the past, and we learn from them. It's also important that we stay connected with the, to the faithful believers that had gone before us. Because First Baptist Church has endured not just because of the pastors whose names that we know. First Baptist Church has endured because of the countless numbers of people who have worshipped here and served here, right? whose names we don't know, whose names we might not ever know. We don't know the names of the people who have all served elements for the Lord's table. We don't know all of the names of the people who have taught children here. We have pictures of people teaching in classes, people that I don't even know their names. We don't know all the names of people who have swept floors and fixed buildings and invited their friends to hear a message. But each and every one of them, every single one of them has left their mark and by their individual efforts has pushed First Baptist Church forward. And so it's important to remember where we have been. And it's also important to remember who we are. You see, the church is not simply an organization like a club. This is why I really get frustrated with people who, who say they love Jesus, but they don't like organized religion. Religion. I kind of understand where they're coming from, but they've missed the point. The church is not an organization. I mean, there's organizational elements, but it's not an organization like a club. It is, it's not just the gathering of people in common interests. I mean, I mean, lots of those kinds of organizations have come and gone in Boron in the past. Lots of organizations where people gather together for common interests you know, are not here anymore. But the church is something so much more important than an organization. 
It's a living, breathing organism. It is alive, which, which means its connections and relationships are far more important. In fact, the church, as the Bible describes it, is the body and the bride of Christ. Can it be any more intimate than that? It is the body which Christ calls himself the head. It is the bride of which Christ himself is the husband, the bride that Christ himself gave himself up for. And so the church is so much more than simply 13 people agreeing to hang out together and have potlucks. Though we really like potlucks, right? I'm hungry, okay? Forgive me. The church is a divine institution where people are drawn together. I want you to hear me. The church is a divine institution where people are drawn together by God into a covenant community for the glory of God. That is why the mission of First Baptist Church is to glorify God through worldwide worship, bringing about the worship of God throughout the world. And this is accomplished through the objectives of the Great Commission, which is evangelism, baptism, and discipleship. We are to go into the world and make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that Christ has commanded us to do. The church is a covenant community living and working together on mission for Christ. And this church has then two dimensions to it. You have the universal church, or from the Latin, the Catholic church, not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church, which is, which is a denomination. But universally, the church is the body of all believers at all times in history. As our 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith expresses in chapter 26, it says that the Catholic, that is the universal church, may be called uh, invisible with respect to the internal work of the Holy Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him who fills all in all. The universal church is all of the body of believers who have ever lived, who live now, and who will ever live. We are part of that same church, even if we have different names, even if we have denominational differences. The second paragraph says this, all people throughout the world who profess faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints as long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or holy, uh, unholy living. All local congregations ought to be made up of these. If a person confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and believes in the essential doctrines of the faith, they are our church family universally. The universal church is the body of all true believers throughout all history. You are in the same church family as Billy Sunday. You're in the same church family as R.C. Sproul. You're in the same church family as Charles Spurgeon. You're in the same church family as John Calvin. You're in the same church family as Martin Luther. 
You're in the same church family as Chuck Smith. The universal body of true believers throughout history. And it's also locally. The local church is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ in a geographic location who gather for regular corporate worship to encourage, exhort, and equip each other to live on mission for Christ. If you've listened to me more than once, you have heard that we are all on mission for Christ. And again, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith reads this in, in paragraph 5. It says, In exercising the authority entrusted to him, the Lord Jesus, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, calls to himself out of the world those who are given to him by his Father. They are called so that they will live before him in all the ways of obedience that he prescribes for them in his word. Those who are called, he commands to live together in local societies or churches for the mutual edification and for fitting and the fitting conduct of public worship that he requires of them while they are in the world. Paragraph 6 says the members of these churches are saints by calling visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life, their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God, which is the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. I want you to notice how the confession calls the church the local church, local societies. The term society means an aggregate of people living together in community. That's what the church is. It's a collection of people of different lives, different backgrounds, experiencing and living together in the same community. And what is a community? Well, the word community is derived from the word common. And the idea of that community is that there's a collection of people who have unity in things that they have in common. Well, what is it that then unites the church? What is it that we have in common? It is the gospel. It is our common faith. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. There is one body. One body. And one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The church is a community that is unified by our common faith, despite our diversity, despite big differences among us, despite differing backgrounds, despite differences in color of skin, despite Differences in political ideologies, despite personality types, despite their shortcomings. The church is a community of people 
unified together. Diverse from where they come from, but unified in the common faith and the common mission of Christ. But it's actually even deeper than that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is a text that I have preached on a number of times. It's actually one of my favorite ones to preach on when it comes to the church. I love what this text communicates. And I can spend a couple hours on that, but I won't do that because I know you're hungry like me. But what we see in this text is the church, first of all, belongs to God. Is the church of the living God. Hear those words. It is the church of the living God. It is His institution. Let us never forget that. We can certainly take ownership and say that it's our church. It is my church. Welcome to my church. I love my church. But remember, ultimately, it is His church, His institution. He created it. He sustains it. He builds it. And it exists for His purposes. And so it is to be what He created it to be. And it's to be ran how He ordained for it to be ran. And the members of the church ought to live the way that He has ordained for them to live. Secondly, notice it says, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. This is a, a text I've meditated on and thought about and worked through so many times. The church is the God-ordained instrument that he is using to defend and declare the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. The church is the instrument that God has created and ordained to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of the world. Please understand, if there is no church, there is no hope. And as such, the objectives of the church are to be defending our faith, the orthodoxy of our faith, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, discipling believers, and then demonstrating for the world the pattern of worship. The church defends the orthodox teachings of scriptures handed down to us by the apostles. The church corporately and individually declares the gospel of Jesus Christ by going out into the world and sharing the message, the good news. And the church is the context where believers are discipled and encouraged to grow towards spiritual maturity. And the church together demonstrates what it looks like to glorify God through worship, both corporately and individually. This is where we learn to worship God not just on Sunday morning, but in every other part of our lives. And I could probably do four weeks just on those things. But notice the third thing that Paul says, which is the point I want to spend the rest of my time on. He says the church is the household of the living God. It is his household. Now, when Paul says household, he's not talking about a building. Because the church has never been a building. The church can certainly own a building. And I think that the church owning buildings for the gathering together of the church family is valuable and helpful. 
But the church is not a building, and it never has been. We love this old building, but this building is not the church. So what is Paul talking about then when he says the household of God if he's not talking about a building? Well, as a man in the first century, he's talking about what it is that makes up a household. He's talking about the members of the household. He's talking about a family. A family. Because that's what the church is. It is a family, which is one of the most mind-blowing and glorious doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine of adoption brings me to tears. God has adopted us as his children into his family. God, by the counsel of his own will, does all that is necessary for us. Not only to make peace with us, who were once his enemies, but then transforms us into something new so that we can be his family members. Just let that sink in. We don't spend enough time thinking about these kinds of things. We who rebelled against God, we who, as Romans says, suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness, we who knew God but refused to worship him as God and give thanks to him, we who worshiped all manner of created things, we who wanted our sin and spurned God, we who were condemned and were without an excuse, God took us in our rebellion, in the midst of our blasphemy, in the midst of our spurning His grace that He pours out on all people. He took us and took out our hearts of stone and put in us brand new hearts of flesh. And then He makes atonement for our sin by the blood of His own Son. And then clothes us in righteousness so that we may not just simply be former combatants but to be his beloved children, part of his holy family. We're not his slaves. We're his children. This is the picture that we see in the New Testament of the prodigal son. If you've not read that text, read it again. A young man spurns his dad's love, wishes him dead, takes his inheritance runs away and squanders it, makes a shipwreck of his life, and then repents and comes back home, hoping that his father will just make him a slave. I'm okay with not even being your family anymore. Just make, make me a slave. And what's the father's reaction? He runs to him. He kisses him. Throws the robe on him puts the shoes on his feet, puts the ring on his finger. And welcomes him home as a child. What a glorious truth. God chose by his grace to restore us back into right relationship with him as family. God is reconciling us to himself which is what Paul says in Romans 5. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled 
to God by the death of his son. And so the church is a family of God because we have been reconciled to God. And here's the thing I want to drive home today. We have been reconciled to God and we have been reconciled to each other. To each other. Not only has God reconciled himself to us, he reconciled us to one another. And this is the truth that is lost on so many people today who confess Christ. It is a truth that we don't spend near enough time thinking about or talking about or celebrating When God adopted us, he not only brought us into right relationship with him, he brought us back into right relationship with each other. But this is a truth that sometimes many people just will not take seriously. Especially in our Western world, in our Western context especially in an individualistic, consumeristic society, we as Americans were brought up within an individualistic culture. We prize individualism, which by itself is not a bad thing. We prize the idea that a person is responsible for himself. That's a good idea. We prize the idea of personal freedom. That is also a good thing. Right? And the fact is, life for many, is about their personal choices. We as Americans prize the fact that we are to live how we want, where we want. As long as we live in harmony with everyone around us. So it doesn't matter what everyone else does. That's what we as Americans value and, and, and prize. But this individualism though it's been good for our country, which, by the way, is disappearing around us. It's been good for our country. But the downside of this individualism has become the lens that shapes how we see even our faith in Christ and our relationship with the church. And it's because of this, many Christians think that their relationship with God is just simply about them and Jesus. I know that's how I thought years ago. That they made an individual profession of faith and that Jesus is their personal savior and so they think in individual terms. And they think, that's all I need. My Bible, Jesus, and that's it. I got Jesus, so I'm good. And while it is true that Jesus is our personal savior and we must all come to him individually because I can't come for you, you can't come for me, you can't come for your kids, You can't come for your grandkids. We all must come individually. And Jesus must become our personal Lord and Savior. The Christian life, though, has never, ever been about an individual relationship with God, and that's it. It has always been about God and His people. A relationship with God has always included a relationship with His people people. How do we know that? Well, let's find out. Let's ask ourselves, what's the standard for righteousness before God? The standard of righteousness for all human beings, how we are measured is what? 
It is the law. The law is how we then measure God's standard of righteousness. The law is what we know that Christ Himself fulfilled on our behalf. The law is the standard. It is the mirror which we look and we see how we fall short and we see that we need to be redeemed. It is the law. Well, what did Jesus say? The summary of the law is when, they were, when He was asked what was the greatest commandment. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. These two commandments are the summary of the entire law. A relationship with God and a relationship with His people. In fact, think about the Ten Commandments and how they're structured, which is a more detailed summary of the law. The first half of the Ten Commandments is about a relationship with God and how we live in community with God. The second half is how we live in community with His people. A relationship with God has always included, has always included, hear me, church family, always included a relationship with His people. When we come to faith in God, not only are we entered in a relationship with God under the covenant of grace, we are entered into the covenant community, the covenant community of His elect, the community of His people, His family. And what that means is we are all called to live and work and serve inside this covenant community together as the family of God. And the thing that you and I need to understand is we've been reconciled not just to God, but to each other. Just as we've been reconciled to God and in right relationship with Him, you have been put in right relationship with each other. And the thing that we need to understand is this being reconciled to each other is not something that we work toward. It has already been accomplished in Christ. As Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You were all united in Christ. It has already been accomplished. You have already been reconciled together as family. Now we simply need live that way. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? The dividing wall that of hostility has been removed. All of our sins have been atoned for. All of our sins against God and all of our sins against one another. The barrier between us has been removed just like the veil that was torn in the temple. It is a settled reality. We just need to live that way. We need to walk in that truth. It is our divine calling to live as those who have been reconciled to each other as family, even when it's really hard. Just as we live as those who've been reconciled to God, even when that's hard. 
You've been reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Now live in it. Because if you're in Christ, you are a part of each other's lives because you're part of God's family. And I want you to hear me. I understand it isn't always easy. It's not. Because family life is messy, right? Even in your regular family's life is messy. Not to mention we all still, on this side of heaven, live in a fallen, broken world in bodies that are frail and weak and still influenced by sin. We all have our own personalities. We all have our own issues. We all have our own stories, our own fears, our own securities, our own habits and worries. (laughs) Behind that smile you see on Sunday morning when they're saying, praise the Lord, is someone who's still battling something from the week before, someone who's hurting. And so sometimes family life can be hard because sometimes we can be hard on each other. But what I find strange oftentimes, especially in our country, is we expect, what we we expect in our earthly families is different than what we expect in our church families. Because in our earthly families, we expect that there's going to be tension sometimes. Right? Thanksgiving's coming up very soon. Right? Many of you will be in context where there will be some tension in your family. We expect that there will be points in family that things are going to get a little bit difficult. Your family members will hurt your feelings. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. In our families, we expect that someone's going to irritate us. I just spent Saturday doing my uncle's funeral. It was my my mom's brother. And it was wonderful to see so many family members that I hadn't seen for a while, but there were people that were there that weren't there. Why? Because family members are irritated with each other, right? We, we understand that there's going to be times in our family members, in our families, that, that we're going to be misunderstood. But we remain family nonetheless. And it's the same with our relationship with God. Our relationship with God at times can be very difficult, not because of Him, but because of us. We fall into sin. We get distracted. And we suddenly are not spending the time with him that we need to spend with him. We, we take our eyes off of Christ and get overwhelmed with the storm in our lives. But we remain his family nonetheless, even when it's hard. What I find strange is though that we expect family life to be messy and our lives, even with God, to be messy. Many seem to expect that our church family that our life with our church family is somehow supposed to be completely different. We expect that our church family life not to be messy. We have this expectation that somehow that we're going to give each other always, 100% of the time, our very best. That assumes so much. Because for some reason, we subconsciously expect our church family members, because they're Christians, to be perfect. Forgetting we're Christians too, and we're not perfect. 
regardless of their struggle, regardless of how they're feeling, regardless of what they are going through, regardless of all the common things that plague us all, we somehow expect out of our church family members something we can't expect out of anyone else around us. We can't even expect it out of ourselves. For some reason, we expect that church family life to be perfect and and that somehow in our church family, they're not going to rub us the wrong way or that we're not going to get our feelings hurt or we're not going to feel irritated and we won't get offended. And it will always be about smiles and sunshine. But it's not. Why would we expect that? We don't expect that in a relationship with God. In fact, we desperately cling to the hope that he's going to have mercy on us and forgive us because invariably we're going to offend him. We're going to do things that are outside of what his will for our life is and we're depending on the fact that he is not going to just cast us out. So why do we expect perfection out of each other? And worse, why do so many refuse to give or forgive or seek to make things right? Why do so many people in our country and our culture withdraw from one another? Why do so many people simply just walk away from church rather than taking the time to walk through reconciliation? I I, I hear all the time, well, I don't want to go to church because I got hurt. Okay, so you you don't think that uh, the, the, the apostles were hurt by Judas? Right? You don't think that they experienced hurt at the hands of people they'd ministered to? You don't think Paul felt betrayed at some time? I mean, remember him and Matthew were at odds. Not Matthew, but him and Mark were at odds at one point. Understand, this isn't a new issue, by the way. It's not something that's unique to to the American experience. It's not unique to the 21st century, and it's certainly not unique to Baptist churches either. And it's not unique to First Baptist Church either. It's an issue that's gone on for centuries. In fact, in, again, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which, by the way, was written over 400 years before, says this, church members who have been offended, church members who have been offended and have performed their duty concerning the person by which they are offended should not disrupt any church action or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church. means don't stop coming to church or administration of any ordinances because of the offense of any of their fellow members. Instead, they should look to Christ in the further action of the church. Church family members have been offending each other and hurting each other's feelings and stepping on each other's toes for centuries. In fact, it was an issue even in the early church that Paul writes, what he writes in much of the New Testament is about that very issue. In fact, one of the common themes that Paul writes on over and over again is standing for the unity of the faith, despite our differences. Again, Paul in Ephesians 4 writes this. He says, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Church family life has always been messy, and it will always be messy until the Lord comes home. 
Family life has always been challenging. Right? But we are all, every one of us, called to walk in the unity of the faith. That is why we are united by our common faith. We are united in the body of Christ, which we can go into all those scriptures that talk about how we're a part of one another. The truth is we have been reconciled to each other. There is, he says, is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. It is true that family life can be hard, but we have already been reconciled to each other. We have already been reconciled to each other. We just simply need to act like it. We need to walk in it. The same way that we walk in our faith with Christ. We walk knowing that we are forgiven. But how do we do this? Well, it's by remembering that you're reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. And you're reconciled to each other by that same exact basis. Your sins have been forgiven and those who sinned against you have been forgiven as well. We also need to remember that the Christian life is about a relationship with God and one another. One another, what a phrase. In fact, that's a phrase that has developed into an important theme in the New Testament. You will see the phrase one another in the New Testament over and over again. In fact, you will see it a hundred times. One hundred times is the phrase in the New Testament, one another. And of those times, 47 of those times are given as direct instructions to the church on how to live as family members, even when things get hard. The Word of God has a lot to teach us about how we live in community with one another in the unity of our faith. And I've actually included in your notes a little brief survey of what the Bible says about this. In fact, if you wouldn't mind, just take them out and let's go over them together. I think this, is, this has been helpful to me. Hopefully it's helpful to you. And the first thing I want you to notice is, is that it, it, there's a theme of unity that starts it. One third of these one other verses deals with the theme of unity in the church. When you hear something once in the word of God, it's serious. When you hear it twice, it's really serious. When you hear it more than that, God's trying to like hammer the point into your head. Mark 9.50 tells us we're to be at peace with one another. Not only are we at peace with God because of the gospel, we're at peace with one another. John 6.43 says, don't grumble against one another. Romans 6.12.16 and 15.5 says, don't I mean, be of the same mind with one another. Romans 15.7 says, accept one another. 1 Corinthians 11.33 says, to wait for one another before taking the Lord's table. That was because rich people were selfish at that time, forgetting to live in community with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 5.15 says, don't bite or devour one another and consume one another. Galatians 5.26, don't be boastful, don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Ephesians 4.2 says, gently, patiently tolerate one another. 
Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with and forgive one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. James 4.11 and 5.9 says, Don't complain against one another. James in 5.16 says, Pray and confess your sins to one another. And then there is the truth that one-third of these verses is about loving one another. John chapter 13, verse 34. John chapter 15, verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 17. Romans 13, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. 1 Peter 1, uh, 22. Um, 1 John 3, 11. 1 John 4, 17. 1 John 4, 11. 2 John chapter 5 says what? To love one another. And not love like with this fickle, emotional kind of love, like, oh, they're so nice to me, I really love them. That's easy. No, it's with an agape love. It's the love of the will. It's the love of choice. Galatians 5.13 says, through love, serve one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, tolerate uh, one another in love. 1 Peter 5.14 Greet, each, greet one another with a kiss of love. By the way, a hug will suffice for me or even a handshake, okay? Just, just so you know. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in love. And then it says humility, right? About 15% stress and attitude of humility and deference among believers. Give preference to one another in honor. That's Romans 12.10. Philippians 2.3, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Galatians 5.13, serve one another. John 13.14, wash one another's feet. Which means you ought to do whatever it takes to serve one another. And remember that Jesus washed Judas's feet. He's enemy. Romans 12.16 says, don't be haughty, be of the same mind. Ephesians 5.21 be subject to one another. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. And then here's the rest. Do not judge one another and don't put a stumbling block in your brother's path. That's the summary of Romans 14, 13. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, and 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a kiss. Again, the handshake will do really, really nicely or even a hug. I'll take that too. But Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.25, speak to the truth to one another. Colossians 6.9, don't lie to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another concerning the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage and build up one another. Hebrews 10.24, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. James 5.16, pray for one another. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another. God reconciled you to himself as family. And he reconciled you to each other as well. Let us walk in that truth. Let us continue to be a loving community of Christ followers who are passionately in pursuit of Jesus, who are deeply connected to one another, and completely committed to sharing the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. And let us walk in the reconciliation of God as his family. 
so that First Baptist Church endures 84 years and maybe even more. Let us all know we are all reconciled to each other. Now let us then walk in that. And then as Jesus says, if somebody has something against you, then go make peace with them. If somebody has something against you, go make peace with them. If you have something against someone, then go tell it to them and make peace with them. The reconciliation we have in Christ is a settled reality. We just simply need to act like it. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.